Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Well, it was, uh, it was $60 a week, including electricity and walking distance to the university, which I'd been uh, selected to go to in Sydney. $60 a week. And walking distance also to a local shop, which had these loaves of bread or something similar for about 80 cents a loaf. It was incredible. And as I drove with my dad to to my new home in in Sydney, we hit Sydney and we got to the, the leafy northern suburbs and we could pass the various train lines. And my place was going to be only a short train ride to Olympic Park. And this was the year 2000, the year of the Sydney Olympics, and so that was a particular bonus. Now, I'd paid my deposit to get in, and there was no reference checks required. We got to Sydney, and we headed over the the Parramatta River after we'd gone through the leafy northern suburbs, and we made it across the river, and we'd looked down the harbour. It was beautiful, and we kept on driving and, and finally hit my new home, an apartment complex of sorts. This was the Auburn Hospital student accommodation, converted nurses' quarters. And my room was about the size of this table, maybe double. It was clearly not very big. The the room was on a floor of 30 rooms with a kitchenette shared between all 30 people and a couple of fridges, one in the lounge room of the the common lounge room because there wasn't enough room in the kitchen. And as I opened them to put one of the fridges to put my food in, which I could stack in that little spot, there was no room, it was full of beer. No staff on site. There was ambulance sirens at 2 a.m. every night because right next door to a student accommodation that is a nurse's quarters is a hospital and an emergency department. On Friday, the the, the mosque bells would ring and the calls to prayer of exuberant Turkish men yelling to one another across the street in joy. The ruckus on Wednesday night of, of uni pub night as students left to go out and then would come back in and every weekend, all hours, and, and then the dares of one inebri- inebriated student to, to many others to climb up a level of the, the apartment complex and jump to the pool below, off the veranda. And so they'd run through the nurses who lived on level one and they'd jump out, you know, fair enough, about you know, one and a half stories high, and then they'd do level two, and then they'd dare each other to do level three. I lived on level five. And one night at about 1am, I heard the veranda door open and heard a scream and looked out my window and he was in the air from level five going down to the pool. Amazingly lived and didn't need to go to the emergency department. (laughs) What had I committed to in committing to this place? What was this place even about? Could I live here? Could I stay alive here? Could I stay Christian here? You know, I'm naturally an optimist in looking out on life. Change to me is is generally exciting. My view of the future is normally pretty rosy. And I generally expect that I'll be able to cope with what's to come, whatever it may be. 
I give the benefit of the doubt to myself and usually to others as well. But the reality of this student accommodation, that was being tested. The reality of the future is not always what I imagine it to be. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're feeling this way even, even now in life. Maybe you've had a new opportunity or you've got one coming up, a possibly good and promising thing that you think that's going to happen in the future, or something you've begun, a new exercise regime maybe, a mental health plan or a new friend to get to know. There's hope on the horizon. Maybe a new romantic relationship or a new opportunity to, to serve here at church, a new job, starting at uni, a new Bible devotion plan. There's all these new things we might look forward to and be even moving towards. But now maybe the reality is setting in. Either I've just reminded you of the reality that it will set in, or you're feeling that yourself because you've been on this journey for a little bit. It hasn't quite turned out as, as you've hoped or as you've planned. You know, that cool-sounding lecture, that title of that subject, which sounds interesting at uni, and now it's your most hated subject. Or serving in a ministry at church is just way more work than you ever imagined it to be. The, the time with that new friend is, is starting to turn to conflict. The, that first date that you were hopeful about it was pretty awkward. Now, why does this happen to us? Even, even regularly happen to us. It could it be that some of the reason for that is not just external, other people, other factors, but actually internal, that, that we ourselves are, are part of the problem? Now, I'm not always the person that I hope I will be. Maybe that's your story too. Maybe you're, you're the self-disciplined person in your rosy picture of tomorrow, and then when you get there, you're less than self-disciplined. You don't do the exercise that you'd planned to do. You, you don't maintain your passion for Jesus, you don't hold your tongue like you'd hoped. Easy examples for me to think of because I can think of myself in each of those examples. Not the friend I was sure I would be. Not the small group member for others that I wished I would be and that I want others to be for me. Are you like me? Is, is your commitment a bit like this tree? Frail. Breaking. My guess is that we're all like that sometimes. Well, today in this next section of Matthew chapter 8, we meet three different types of committers, people who, who we might all resonate with in different ways. All of them are keen to join Jesus to follow him, and though each of them are frail in their own way. And we're going to think about this question, who is Jesus? These stories are about people's responses to Jesus. We, we see that. We heard those stories before. But as we look at their responses to Jesus, we meet Jesus and we see his responses to them. What's he on about? Who is he? Well, Jesus is attracting a following in this section in Matthew 8. Remember his great sermon on the mount in Galilee and then northern Israel and the powerful healings of many people and the crowds are coming to follow him and there's all these randoms and unknowns and irreligious outsiders that Jesus engages with and interacts with. And then Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus saw the crowd around him. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, this lake is some 13 k's wide. So, like Jesmond roundabout to Newcastle Beach. It's a long way. You could see the other side of the lake on a good, clear day. But it's a fair distance. 
Now, at this moment, the crowd's gathering around Jesus. Notice what he does. He orders his disciples to get the boat ready that they go to the other side of the lake. He's not reveling in the attention of, of the following, the crowd. The problem is actually his popularity. He's decided he wants to get to the other side. But this religious scholar comes up to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Sounds so keen and committed. In those days, people would attach themselves to a teacher, a wise person, a sage. They'd become students of the teacher, disciples, and they'd follow that person around, they'd listen to their instructions and deliberately be learning, not just from their words, but from their life. The more followers a teacher had, the more uh, status and wealth that would bring to them. And so when this guy says to Jesus, I will follow you, he's giving up his own career path. Any following that he himself had as a, as a scribe, a teacher, he's tossing that in right in front of them, in front of this crowd, to commit wholeheartedly to Jesus. He's putting himself on the line here. And so what does Jesus say? Well, great, you're in. Come, jump in the boat. Let's go. Be my disciple. No, Jesus says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, talking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says he doesn't even have the comforts that a bird has or that a fox has. No home, no nest, no rest. What does Jesus mean here? Is Jesus actually literally sleeping rough? Well, the great Jewish teachers, the greatest of the Jewish teachers, had the most honour, you know, the best teaching gigs in the, the best synagogues. Jesus thinks that this guy thinks that Jesus has that trajectory, that that's Jesus' future. And so if he joins Jesus, that will be something of shared honour with him. Fame by association, Jesus says, nah, you've got me wrong. You've got me wrong. Jesus is wanting to escape the crowds here. He's choosing to remain a nobody in the eyes of all the somebodies. Is that the kind of teacher this guy wants to follow? Effectively, Jesus is saying, are you sure you want to come with me? Do you really know who I am? See, by saying he has no place to lay his head, Jesus is hinting here at his ultimate purpose, not just what his sleep will look like that night. He's hinting at his mission. That'll mean sacrifices, great sacrifice, sacrifice of earthly comfort. It's a hint here even to his death. I think it's connected to why he also calls himself the Son of Man here. Notice that? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Jewish teacher would think of the Son of Man and think of a promised Messiah-type figure, as we see in this, this Daniel passage. One who would come at the end of the age in great power, with great victory over evil, to rescue and restore and to reign. It's a picture of victory. But that's not the only picture of the, the Son of Man, as a Jewish person would think of it. There was this other picture, we, we met him last week, the other type of Son of Man, in Isaiah. Isaiah 51 here, the servant who is expected to come and to suffer, even die for the people. But there's another term as well, another way this is used, is just to talk about yourself, I, like Ezekiel does, talking of himself. 
but it's particularly picking up there on the frailty of humanity. Jesus, I think, uses this term in all three ways at different times, often multiple at once, and the person is meant to kind of work out what he's doing. I think here in Matthew 8, verse 20, he's being deliberately ambiguous at this point in the story. Jesus knows that he is all three of those figures, God's Messiah who's victorious, he'll suffer as God's servant, and he himself is a human. He takes on frail humanity, ultimately taking the place of frail humanity by being frail humanity himself. And so bound up in this one simple line, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, is actually Jesus' mission, his very purpose. And is that to have great scribes honour him? To build up his reputation by them coming and being associated with him? No. Jesus knows his mission. He knows his mission. And he knows this keen teacher's mission, and he realizes those missions do not align. And so this admirably keen, I'll follow you teacher, just is gone from the story. But a second man takes his place, verse 21. Another disciple how he's described, said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. He wants to get in the boat. He wants to come with Jesus to cross the lake to be a disciple, a follower, even more than he already is. But he's just got this admirable clause, just first, Jesus, let me go and bury my father. Now, as excuses go, that's a pretty good excuse, right? It's even commanded and modelled in the Scriptures to honour your parents, to respect them, to go back and say goodbye to them would be an expression of that. And there was Jewish burial customs that they would follow as well, and this man wants to honour those. And Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is shocking. He's meant to hear this, this man, and he's meant to be outraged. Jesus is saying, consider me more important, my mission more urgent than even that, than even any religious custom or or family ties, even the burial of your own father. Now, it may be that his dad is is actually dying at this time, depending on how we understand uh, this exact phrase and how the, the Jewish idioms work. And so he's expecting that to happen and he's wanting to be there in that moment. Maybe that's, that's what's going on here. He wants to honour his family in that way. It could be that he's wanting to follow the custom of the time where a year usually after someone had died, they would then uh, exhume the bones and place them in an ossuary box. So maybe he's wanting to bury his father in, in that way. Maybe he wants to do that now in advance of the year in order to, to honour his father. Either way, what Jesus says is still shocking, isn't it? Let the dead bury their own dead. Which I think he's getting at, let the spiritually dead, those who don't know that life, true life, is only to be found in Jesus, let them, maybe his brothers, maybe family members who don't follow Jesus, let them bury the, the father, the, the dead father. Or it may be more simple even than, than those interpretations. It could just be a, an idiom that's like, let it be. Let it be. Let it take care of itself. We might phrase that uh, more crudely today, get over it, or something like that. Again, it's still shocking, isn't it? Why would Jesus, this, this humble son of man figure, who doesn't want great honour and great acclamation from people, why would he say this? 
This is all about importance. This is about what matters most. Like the the first guy, Jesus thinks this guy has also misunderstood who he is. His excuse is a symptom of that misunderstanding. And Jesus, we know, isn't against honouring father and mother. We see that here in Matthew later. He calls out religious experts in this passage, in Matthew 15, how they've failed to honour father and mother. But here, this this would-be follower of Jesus, Jesus responds to him with this clear statement that he himself will not be treated as less important or less urgent. Following him is an all-in kind of commitment. And so like the first guy, this man just disappears out of the story. We don't hear his response. Verse 23, Jesus then gets into the boat and his disciples follow him. And this storm comes up on the lake, arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. Now, a bunch of years ago, um, maybe 15 or so now, I was on um, Lake Macquarie sailing on a boat not dissimilar in size to the boat that uh, Jesus may have been in, uh, though probably a little sturdier than the one he was because it made out of a strong structure rather than the, the wooden that they used. And I was sailing on the boat, and it seemed like a good afternoon, but we'd forgotten to check the weather forecast. And a mate and I, this is after a camp at Lake Macquarie up sort of the far end of the lake. And when there's a southerly coming on Lake Macquarie, you don't want to be out, uh, particularly if it's got a storm connected with it. Usually what would happen is the clouds would come and then they would kind of split apart at the end of the lake and, and the worst of it would miss the bit where the, the bay we would sail on. Not that day. We were going out and the, the waves started picking up and I've never seen the swell quite as big on Lake Macquarie with a southerly before and it got really, really dark. It was about two or three in the afternoon, but it got really dark and our boat got flipped over and turtled. So if you know sailing, that's when it goes completely upside down. It looks like a turtle shell with the mast sticking down. And the top of the mast got stuck in the mud at the bottom of the lake. It's about five metres deep. And we really struggled to get it up. And the, the, the sail would be hit by the, the swell. And it was just putting more and more pressure on the mast as our boat was upside down and we were trying to right it. We finally got it back up and we looked up and the mast like, whoo, massive bend in it. And we're in trouble here. <laughs> Somehow we managed to get the sail down off the, the mast because it was just too strong to control. And we continued away but we couldn't control the boat at all. It was like waves rocking up. And so he and I are just kind of holding on to the mast. Like, and the wind was so strong that we could turn our bodies as, and use our bodies as like sails. We were enough uh, to catch the wind and ride across the lake. But then we looked back and our rudder was falling off the back of the boat. <laughs> and so we had no way of steering anyway. <laughs> so we're completely at the mercy of this, of this storm. And we could see the cliff on the other side near Mayuna Bay and just thought maybe we'll end up there. But basically, we're in all sorts of trouble. There was no way we could sleep in the boat in this moment. And yet that's what Jesus is doing. That's his experience in this moment, in this storm, asleep at the front. And they wake him up. Verse 25. We were okay, by the way. Yeah, as you can probably tell, I'm still alive. They, they wake Jesus up and they said, Lord, save us. We're perishing. We're going to drown. And so they figure Jesus can do something about this, about their death, their impending death. That's what they think is going to happen. He is their only hope. Either it's him 
or, or, or they die. And so they cry out. But before Jesus does anything about the storm, the waves, while the waves are crashing over the boat, he says to them, why are you afraid, are you of little faith? Now, that sounds pretty insensitive if someone was to come and say that to me on my boat. I mean, they may have come to help me, that would be good. But this story, I think, is also about commitment. Jesus, why are you afraid, are you of little faith? It's a story about commitment, like the, the earlier ones. But yet it seems so insensitive, doesn't it? Jesus, have you not noticed the storm? Are you still asleep? We've got every reason to be afraid. Look at the waves, Jesus. Is their faith really little? They've just called out to Jesus, save us. We're going to drown. They think he can do something about it. Is their faith really little? Like, isn't that great trust? Isn't that power, trust in his power to save them? Well, Jesus doesn't think so. Remember the centurion in the earlier story? who had great faith, greater faith than all those in Israel, and yet this, these guys, trusting Jesus to save them from the storm, are you of little faith? And then he rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately it's, it's still, it's calm. And what about the disciples? What do they do? What sort of person is this, is their response? What sort of person is this? What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves do what he says, obey him. Which leaves the question of them, will they obey him? Will they be like the wind and the waves at this point? Or will they just slip out of the story like the, the earlier guys? And so there's our, there's our three responses. This, this keen religious man, this would-be but, but first follower, and then these disciples who are afraid and, and then shocked. And by meeting them, we, we've again met Jesus this morning. And what have we seen? Who, who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, let me suggest three things that this passage gives us a picture of, of who Jesus is. Firstly, that Jesus submits to creation for the sake of his mission. Who is Jesus? Jesus is one who submits to creation for the sake of his mission. He's got no place, no resting place on earth, no place to lay his head, no hole or nests. His concern is not personal protection or even public acclaim from people. His concern is his mission. The dead can bury their own dead because Jesus is on about life, bringing eternal life to people, and that's an urgent mission as he sees it. And so he submits himself to the limits of creation not just being human, but to suffering as a human, to frailty as the Son of Man for the sake of that mission. Now we think, how can Jesus sleep in a boat in a raging storm? Well, it tells us that he's human, he's exhausted, but also because his mission is not yet complete. He knows what he's really here for, and God will protect him to that end, that he will come not to die in a storm, but to die on a, on a cross for the sake of humanity. Jesus submits to creation for the sake of his mission. Second thing we see is this, that Jesus claims his mission is more important than anything in all creation. Jesus claims that his mission is more important than anything in all creation. He's not meek and mild. He gives orders to be taken to the other side of the lake. He questions the commitment of this keen teacher. He commands, the, follow me, leave your father to a would-be follower and he calls out desperate disciples for their little faith. He's not meek and mild. 
His response in all these instances is addressing their failure to see who he is and what he's really come to do to align themselves with his mission. They've misunderstood who Jesus is. And so they've misunderstood what he's on about. He's God's Messiah. He's the Son of Man. His mission is more important and more urgent than any gaining honour in this creation. But Jesus knows he's ultimately the Lord, the creator of all creation. But then can he back up that claim? Can he back up that claim? I think he can in this story because Jesus validates his claims by demonstrating his authority over all creation. He arose, rebuked the wind and the waves, and there was great calm. And the disciples marvel, what what sort of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. How do we answer that question? What sort of man is this that can do this? Right through the Old Testament, we see pictures, particularly from early in the the creation narrative, of, of this calming of the chaos. The sea in ancient times was a place of of, of chaos, even evil it was connected with, of distress. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Darkness over the waters, the waters being a place of chaos in the ancient mind. And in the verses to follow, what does God do? Well, he orders things. He separates waters from waters, waters below, skies and seas. He orders the chaos. Or Psalm 107 describes it this way. He silences the roar of the sea, the roar of their waves. The waves of the sea were hushed. God stills the waters in order to save And so here in this event at Lake Galilee, Jesus is not just doing a party trick. He's saving people, yes, but he's pointing out his power as God of creation, God who can calm the chaos. Jesus calms the storm. And as we fast forward in Matthew's account, we've got Jesus in all his humanity here, subject to creation, dead on the cross. When he does get a place to lay his head, it's in a borrowed tomb. And yet in those same moments, it's Jesus in all his divinity, isn't it? Rising again to beat sin, to ultimately calm that chaos, the great chaos that it causes in the world and in our lives. And so if this is all who Jesus is, this passage leads us to ask, well, well then who are we? Who are we? And can we even commit to this Jesus? Because my guess is, like my example of of moving to Sydney, our answer of the the future is generally positive. Of course I can. I'll be able to do that. I can commit. I think this passage challenges that outlook, that rosiness. Two seemingly very committed people get turned away from Jesus here. Jesus doesn't think they've got what it takes to follow him. He doesn't want followers who think they can follow him. He wants people who understand who he really is and from that realise they can't follow him perfectly, but yet still trust him. Who come to him and say, Lord, save us. Save me. My faith is frail. 
but save me. I trust you. That's the account of these disciples, isn't it? The little faith disciples. They bring nothing but absolute reliance on Jesus, and that's what Jesus asks of us. And so as I ask that question, can we commit to Jesus? Can, can, can you commit to Jesus? The answer is no. And should we? Well, yes. We should expect the costs. We should expect that it won't mean a claim or the comforts of the world. It'll mean cost to ourselves. But Jesus' mission is important and, and urgent and is worth every cost. Jesus is worth every cost. That's the reminder of, of this passage. And so let me pray that we might count that cost, but remember how important and urgent Jesus' mission is. Let me pray. Lord, we, we want to say, I'll, I'll follow you. But we know we also need to say, I'll, I'll fail to follow you. And so we're so thankful that as we come to you and say, I'll follow you and, and I'll fail to follow you, you are the one who forgives and has done everything we need so that in our failure, you remain strong and you can calm the chaos. You can bring us life, ultimately life eternal by virtue of your death and resurrection. And so we praise you for that and we're thankful. Amen. Music